0: Good afternoon, welcome to the Unlocking the Legislature podcast. My name is Sanjay Wagley. I'm the Senior Vice President of Governmental Affairs for the California Association of Realtors. Today I have with us Kareem Driessi, Legislative Advocate with the California Association of Realtors. He handles primarily our rental housing issues, including fair housing and property management. Jennifer Sveck is also a Legislative Advocate with the California Association of Realtors, and she works primarily in our home ownership and investment housing issues. Today's topic is going to be an inside look at how housing policy is built, and I'm going to go ahead and start with you, Jennifer. So we finally got some significant movement on housing supply this year with SB 9 from Senator Atkins and SB 10 from Senator Weiner. The most important of these, or the most significant, is SB 9. Why do you think a major housing bill finally passed?
1: I think the reason that the uh, housing bill this year passed of SB 9, SB 10 and the package that also included SB 8 was because there's a significant coalition surrounding the effort this time uh, that was broader ranging than even in past years. I think the importance of this measure was it tried to address all of the concerns brought up by local governments. It tried to bring uh, closure to the equity arguments, which CAR was um, unabashedly uh, uh advocating for this year to assure that we didn't create gentrification in neighborhoods and that we were returning private property uh, property rights to property owners. Um, the, the coalition that then emerged was both that of developers ad, ad, uh, equity advocates, the realtors, um, and a variety of others that normally don't always align in their interests. Uh, the, the opposition to the measure this year uh, remained local governments and NIMbys. Uh, those that that don't want to change, uh, see change in their community that don't want to allow their neighbors to have an alteration in the way that they operate uh, their particular parcel to their needs. I think what's really important in the way that we we changed SB 9 this year was that it was limited from what we had pr- in previous years. So last year, SB 1120, which was its predecessor, would have allowed a total of 10 units to be placed on a parcel where where one or three would have been permitted previously under an existing law. Um, I think that most people don't know that existing law in the state of California is a three unit standard statewide, which is vastly different than what everybody hears when they hear that we've ended single family zoning. Nobody has ended anything. Um, In 2015, we created more uh, opportunities for granny flats or second units. Uh, Those have been renamed and repackaged into being accessory dwelling units. So now we have the opportunity to have a separate accessory dwelling unit and an internal junior accessory dwelling unit in a single family home under existing land use zoning. SB 9 simply changes that to say that a private property owner can split their lot into two and have a maximum of two units per parcel. So you could have your single family home with a junior ADU incorporated and you could have a the opportunity to split your lot and create a second home with a junior ADU inside. And I think that's really important for individuals seeking uh, to increase their wealth and equity because they can get a new construction loan, which is far easier to obtain than even an ADU loan in this day and age.
0: And Jennifer, why do you think the coalition came together this year, this broader coalition that you described?
1: Senator Atkins made extreme efforts to resolve the concerns of those parties that opposed her bill last year. Uh, CAR had a, a difference of opinion with, respar- with respect to uh, bridging the wealth gap and we realized that we needed to create more ownership opportunities. So we advanced uh, amendments this year to require a three-year owner occupancy requirement in order to get access to the uh, lot spit provisions provided in SB 9. That made a vast difference in who's using the opportunity for the lot split. Under the previous versions, you would have allowed a developer to come in and gentrify a neighborhood by tearing down units and splitting the parcels. The the big difference is now that it has to be the individual that's living within the community and going to remain within the community that has the opportunity to split the lot. I think that made a big difference to being able to get the votes on the assembly floor. Uh, Without that amendment, I don't know that we would have been able to get there. Senator Atkins also made a significant number of amendments before she took ours. Uh, She assures that um, there's a minimum square footage on your lot size and that there's also a percentage requirement. So your lot has to be split 60-40, and you have to have a minimum square footage of 1,200 square feet for that second lot. In addition to that, she makes sure to say that it is a two-unit maximum that you have per lot, which is far different than last year. Last year, it was a five-unit maximum. Um, this year she says that you cannot stack the ADU law on top of the existing law or the law that they're creating under SB 9. What they're saying is specifically that you can either have a duplex or you can have a single family home with an ADU uh, external or you can have an ADU internal but you can't have all of those things. Uh, the max is two units for each parcel and that's a that's a huge change uh, in the way that she moved forward and that that amendment was was significant for us as well, but but really for us, it was the owner occupancy provision for the lot split because we're really interested in creating those ownership opportunities for your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister in order to keep them close so that they don't necessarily have to leave the state of California in order to realize their dream of home ownership and that you'll have a way to help them if you have a lot big enough.
0: And I And I think you've touched on a lot of this, but what do you think the biggest misconceptions are about SB9?
1: The biggest misconception about SB9 is that it ends single-family zoning and then it allows apartments to be built in residential neighborhoods. Uh, just this morning I was reading an article that uh, specifically said that with SB9, uh, duplexes will be approved where apartments weren't. Well, that's apples and oranges. Uh, an apartment building is is much larger than a duplex or a two-unit structure. Uh, the way we construct things now is way different than the way we constructed them in the 60s and the 70s. Don't think of your traditional duplex where you've got a corner lot and, and two two units on either side with two separate garages um, think of something that's that's more um, contained and and looks more like what's in the neighborhood around you. I think that what people also forget is that SB9 specifically says you have to fit within the design standards of the community, which means that it has to look like a single family home. It can't look like your traditional duplex from from the 1960s and 1970s. Um, It's gonna fit within the community look and feel. You're not gonna see overnight a, a 10 unit building being placed on the parcel next door to you. At most, this is actually a more restrictive law than what you already have in land use planning. Uh, the way we look at it, we have a three unit standard statewide. This really is just a, mathematically a plus one to what we had previously. So really, you go from a three unit standard to a four. But the benefit is you get two different parcels, which means you get two different sets of equity and the opportunity to to have a, a, a new construction home that maybe you want to live in and then maybe you want to sell the other home.
0: Okay, um, touching just briefly on SB 10. Um, Just to clarify, because I know there's been a lot of misconceptions about that as well, Uh, that bill simply empowers local governments to impose greater density. And why do you think that's also created a lot of opposition, despite the fact that there's no actual new mandate created by it?
1: I think, unfortunately, a lot of individuals and a lot of our local governments are are fearing the worst, and so they're giving the the greatest argument of of opposition. And those that that don't want to see growth in their neighborhoods and that say that California has enough housing, um, it's... It's a fear tactic used in in stopping the opportunities for choice for those that want to live in denser neighborhoods or to maybe change their their private property to to fit the needs of their family. In this particular case, you're 100% correct. The bill simply empowers your local government to be able to skip some of the extra sequel planning requirements that are necessary to build apartments near uh, public transit um, and high, uh, high density areas. Uh, on public transit corridors, there's specific requirements as to which parcels qualify for the str- uh, for the uh, for this expedited sequel review. So it's very specific as to which kinds of transit stops qualify under under SB 10. But. What's really important is the state isn't saying that you have to develop those areas. All it right. says is we're giving local government the opportunity to skip a step in the planning process that has already been handled during the general plan process where you already received a secret review to begin with. Uh, and now that property private property owners can apply to local governments and specifically ask to build a 10 unit building, uh, but only if the local government, uh, one, decides that they want to build that 10 unit apartment building and two, if they fit within the design parameters determined by the local government.
0: Okay. Uh, Do you think of SB 9 as a property rights bill? 150%
1: it's all about the individual choice I think the individuals that have a tendency to oppose on the basis of not in my backyard or the the NIMBY movement really it's because they don't want their neighbor to be able to have a granny flat or a second unit or to be able to split their parcel into two opportunities for single-family homes because let's be honest you don't have to split your parcel it's not required it's an option Uh, you also don't have to include the junior ADU or the separate ADU or turn it into a duplex it could be Two single-family homes next door to each other, like what we've seen for for decades uh, in the L.A. basin. I grew up in a neighborhood where uh, you had a lot of flag lots, and you had four to four to five units on the same driveway. Um, Essentially, we're looking at that, that same kind of conceptual piece. I, as a private property owner, want to be able to change my parcel and turn it into two, into two lots. But I don't want my neighbor to have that same opportunity. It's that same kind of sentiment that, that creates opposition to SB9. But really, in the end, it's a personal choice as to whether or not you choose to change that. And the private property rights really should always remain with the property owner to use their par- property in a manner that they see uh, best fits their own lifestyle.
0: Okay, thanks, Jennifer. One of the interesting issues around supply is that rent controls and eviction controls continue to be a go-to for the legislature, despite left-leaning economists like Paul Krugman, as well as conservatives like the late Milton Friedman, all talking about the fact that rent controls will always negatively impact the supply of housing. We've had some fairly extreme uh, eviction control and rent control bills this year, all of which failed but one which had broad support in the legislature and um, in the administration, and which even traditional groups such as ours, um, the California Apartment Association, um, did not oppose. Why the lack of opposition to a bill like that?
2: Well, I think the, reason, the main reason why there was a lack of opposition to AB 832 is that it really represented a compromise approach. Um, I think unlike some of the more onerous measures that you alluded to, such as, for instance, AB 15, uh, which would have extended the state uh, eviction moratorium provisions through the end of the year, unlike more owner's provisions like that, AB 832 really represented a compromise approach. Um, and it really did so in, in two key ways. I think first and foremost, it contained provisions that would ensure the ongoing and continued allocation of federal rent relief dollars. So ensuring that those rent relief dollars are there not only for tenants, but in particular small housing providers and housing providers in general. Um, so that was really key that those provisions were there. Uh, additionally, AB-32 also represented a compromise approach because it ensures that the state eviction moratorium provisions that are currently in place in existing law expire on September 30th of 2021. So I believe next week, once we once those provisions expire, uh, we go into a transitional period where, beginning October 1st uh, of 2021 and extending through March of 2022, we'll have a transitional period that will include a modified eviction procedure uh, where it'll provide an opportunity for not only tenants but also housing providers to take advantage of federal rental assistance prior to effectuating an eviction. Um, And so many groups such as the California Apartment Association and other industry groups uh, saw that as a a compromise approach instead of, like I mentioned, AB15 extending the state eviction moratorium provisions through the end of the year. Instead, we're going to have them expire on September 30th. We're going to enter into a transitional period from October 1 through March of 2022, and then hopefully after that period, get back to some semblance of normalcy. And so I think uh, for those reasons, the federal rent relief dollars, ongoing allocation of those dollars, as well as uh, ensuring that the uh, state eviction moratorium provisions expire in a timely fashion on September 30th, I think those were the reasons why, the two key reasons why many groups such as CAR as well as California Apartment Association and others uh, felt it necessary to be neutral on the measure as opposed to being in opposition.
0: There's some housing providers, though, that have still been feeling strain under the system, particularly those who whose tenants might earn above the 80% area median income and therefore are excluded from a lot of the federal programs. Do you think the legislature sort of understands the needs or concerns of
2: these small, especially of the smaller housing providers? I think some do. I think there are some legislators who really do. I think, um, you know, ultimately, I think in terms of the legislature and the members that are in the legislature, I would really divide it into three groups. I think there are many legislators uh, who do uh, understand the plight of small housing providers uh, and are willing to stand and vote. Uh, with those small housing providers in order to ensure uh, that onerous standards are not placed on them and that they receive the relief that they deserve. I think the second group uh, of legislators uh, may empathize with the plight of small housing providers, but they're also receiving counter narratives from other constituencies and so while they may empathize to a certain extent with small housing providers um, they don't necessarily uh, vote their way and then i think there's a third group that a third group of legislators that really has areas of expertise in issues other than housing and they require ongoing education and i think you know one of the things that we're seeing in the legislature uh, is that they're seeking to address the symptoms of the housing crisis they're not necessarily uh, seeking to address the root cause which is we all know the main root cause is the lack of supply and so we need to build more we need to facilitate that building we need to make it easier to build and so there are legislators in that first group that i mentioned that not only empathize with small housing providers but understand that the root cause of this housing crisis that we're in is the lack of supply you mentioned
0: that the eviction moratorium will be ending at the end of this month what what kind of things could happen that could potentially uh, extend that moratorium
2: Sure. Uh, well, I think there's, there are several possibilities. I think there it's sort of a two-part question, right? So I think not only are there possibilities, but then you have to discuss the likelihood of those possibilities. Uh, so certainly there could be, uh, you know, the governor could issue an executive order uh, somehow, uh, you know, extending uh, the eviction moratorium provisions. There could also be a special session of the legislature that the governor calls where, you know, he makes the topic housing and they somehow, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, process a bill that extends uh, those state eviction moratorium provisions. But I think the likelihood of both of those is actually extremely unlikely. Um, I think what we may see in lieu of, of those two possibilities next year is the transitional period that I mentioned that begins October 1st of 2021 and goes through March of 2022 that includes that modified eviction procedure that provides an opportunity, a time period for both tenants and housing providers to apply for rental assistance before effectuating an eviction, I think we will see a proposal that ultimately seeks to extend and possibly even expand uh, those provisions beyond March of 2022, perhaps into the summer, perhaps even beyond. So I think we will see a proposal regarding that with respect to executive orders and special sessions, certainly possible but I think unlikely okay Uh, Jennifer what are some of the conversations
0: among uh, stakeholder groups regarding housing supply bills going forward
1: well I think we have to remember that SB 9 is probably the first bill that we've seen for market rate housing uh, in certainly in my my 20 year career Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward there's been a lot of conversations I know that the the governor in signing SB 9 showed his commitment to solving the housing crisis and and being committed to continuing the conversation to increase uh, stable housing for individuals uh, statewide. I think that the important thing to remember going forward is that we don't have enough housing to, to uh, cover the demand that we've got. Uh, the affordable housing advocates continue to see a deficiency of three million homes, but we have to remember that when you conclude that with the market rate homes, we're looking at a deficiency in excess of 3.5 million homes. And so just the deed restricted affordable housing is, is not the supply that we need to to obtain uh, we have to remember we can't buy our way out of this crisis we're going to have to find some policies to streamline construction and and uh, reuse of existing parcels like what sb9 did Um, going forward car is uh, likely to continue its push that it had from 2020 which is to uh, ask the legislature to include more resources for uh, deed restricted affordable ownership housing Uh, we've been working with the habitat for humanity and the california Building Industry Association to ask that uh, 20% of the rental housing resources that are provided uh, also be given to uh in parity with the ownership housing programs that are out there to facilitate a completion of the housing ladder that we talk about where you started maybe a homelessness transitional housing deed restricted rental housing and then you move into deed restricted affordable ho- uh, ownership housing and then you move obviously into market rate housing which is the dream for everybody to be able to realize the equity of owning their own home and having that that ultimate stability. Uh, we're also looking at policies potentially uh, reallocating federal resources within the state of California. Uh, the federal government has has passed many uh, many bills over the last uh, two years with, rela- with w- related to the pandemic to increase um, opportunities to create stable housing. Uh, California overall, for the most part, only allocates about 10% of those resources to ownership housing programs. Uh, we're, we're looking potentially at our fall meetings to see whether or not the association wants to um, sponsor a bill in 2022 to allocate potentially 20 of those resources in order to create more opportunities for individuals to to get on that housing ladder in the de-restricted affordable housing space um, for us de-restricted affordable housing what we look to help with specifically the workforce housing we're trying to help california's working families which we define as Uh, up to 120% of the area median income to
0: be able to live in the communities for which they work. Do you think this coalition that came together this year, do you think it'll be able to hang together to some extent to pass more pro-supply bills? I think so. Uh, It's a, a culmination
1: of probably five years worth of work that created the coalition to begin with. Uh, we call them deep dives when we, we go into different policy areas related to housing. Sometimes we look at wildfires. Sometimes you look at insurance availability. Other times we're looking at building codes uh, and what the cycle is or whether or not there's uh, changes that need to be done to policies like SB 35 in order to make them more usable or or to fill the gaps. Um, we've done that with uh, accessory dwelling unit law as well to make sure that we're holding local governments accountable
0: appropriately. I think that that the coalition is, is alive and strong. So, any final uh, comments, Kareem, on the rental housing front that you might want to share?
2: I think the only thing I would really say is, um, you know, we have to, at least speaking to the realtor members who are watching and listening, um, I think I would say that we just have to keep uh, trying to educate members of the legislature, keep advocating uh, for issues that you care about, uh, whether uh, trying to affect uh, positive change or trying to beat back bad legislation. Um, You know, I think we need to continue those efforts. You know, there are oftentimes um, uh, other organizations, smaller organizations uh, that perhaps, um, you know, take their eye off the ball and, and, you know, focus on a particular issue and trying to educate the legislature for three, four, five years and then, quickly change and focus on other issues and then come back to those original issues. And they find that, the counter narratives that are offered by other constituencies and by other organizations uh, are have taken hold and so you have to be vigilant and you have to continue to educate uh, members of the legislature about the issues that you care about and ultimately I mean it's September uh, we're at the beginning of football season and one thing that <laughs> realtor members have to keep in mind is that it's you know in terms of trying to get changes uh, passed in the legislature that you want to see it's a game of inches not yards and so it takes time And so having that level of persistence um, really, really matters.
3: Disclaimer. The purpose of this podcast, brought to you by the California Association of Realtors, CAR, is to provide general and educational information and opinions from a wide range of perspectives regarding politics, voting, elections, legislative issues, and more. The opinions, beliefs, and views expressed by guests or participants of this podcast are solely their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions, beliefs, or views of CAR, its affiliates, their respective directors, officers, or employees. Reference to any individual or entity does not constitute an endorsement, recommendation, or any other position or opinion regarding that entity or individual by CAR. This podcast does not constitute professional advice or services of any kind. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast.